Hello, and welcome to The Big Picture, the podcast series on global events which comes to you from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. This is the podcast companion to our Krasno Global Events series, which is available on our YouTube channel. The Krasno Global Events series is hosted by Professor Klaus Laris, the Richard M. Krasno Distinguished Professor of History and International Affairs here at UNC. The Big Picture is narrated and produced by myself, Willow Taylor Chang Yang, a Krasno Events Assistant. The Krasno Global Events Series is a regular series of talks and discussions with high-profile experts from around the world, aiming to enhance our understanding and comprehension of global affairs, past and present. This podcast seeks to boil down these talks on some of the crucial problems of our world to its main points and contribute to our greater understanding of world affairs. After listening to The Big Picture, we encourage you to head over to youtube.com slash krasnounc to watch the full event. Today's episode, the U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Moldova, Kent Logsdon. Moldova is a former Soviet Republic and borders both Ukraine and Romania. Since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, speculation has abounded as to Moldova's place in the conflict, with its EU candidate status and military neutrality, amongst other geopolitical factors. We hope you enjoy this episode of The Big Picture. Good afternoon. I would like to welcome everyone to our Ambassadors Forum, which is part of the Krasno Global Event Series. Our distinguished guest today is Ambassador Kent Loxton. Mr. Loxton is the US Ambassador to the Republic of Moldova. Today we are talking about Moldova, Russia's war on Ukraine, and Moldova's road to Europe. Ambassador Loxton will help us to assess the current situation. He joins us from Chisinau, the capital of Moldova, where it is already just after 9 p.m. I'm Klaus Laris. I'm the Richard M. Krasno Distinguished Professor of History and International Affairs here at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Thank you all for joining us today. You may know that together with Ukraine, Moldova has just become a candidate for EU membership. And part of Moldova, something like 10% of its territory, has been militarily occupied by Russia since 1991. This is the breakaway region of Transnistria, with its capital Triaspol, which has a 400 kilometer long border, a common joint border with Ukraine. It is good to know that once again, we have a very international audience today. And I would like to point out to you our famous YouTube channel on which the videos of all our events can be watched again. The address is youtube.com slash krasnounc. And I'm pleased to know that the US Embassy in Moldova is live streaming our event on their Facebook site. I would like to say hello to North Carolina Secretary of State Elaine Marshall, who has a very special connection to Moldova. And Elaine was instrumental in making sure that many members of the North Carolina-Moldova Partnership Committee and the North Carolina Friends of Moldova have joined us today. Everyone watching us today is more than welcome to submit your questions to Ambassador Loxton. Please send us your written questions with the help of the chat function at the bottom of your Zoom screen. Our Krasno assistants, Willow and Lelia, will select your questions and read them out aloud to all of us. Lelia is actually joining us from Sweden tonight. I'm very pleased, of course, to welcome Ambassador Kent Loxton to the Krasno Global Events Series. Kent Loxton is one of America's most experienced 
diplomats who has had a very successful career. Prior to taking up his job as ambassador to Moldova in February uh, 2022, Ken Loxton was deputy ambassador and chargé d'affaires in Germany. In his previous positions, he worked, for example, as chief of staff for the undersecretary for economic growth, energy, and the environment. He also was deputy ambassador in Tbilisi, Georgia, and served as political counselor in Kiev, Ukraine. He also was posted to Bangkok, Almaty, Islamabad, and quite a few other countries. Ambassador Loxton, it's a great pleasure to welcome you today. It's great that you could make it. Thank you, Professor Lars. It's great to be here and nice to be joining you from Chisinau. Hello. Um, let me ask you straight away, because most people want to know about the relations between Moldova and Russia. What are or what is the view of the people of Moldova uh, of Russia's war on Ukraine? Do they fear that Russia may also attack and try to conquer Moldova? I understand that half of the population in Moldova is pro-Russian and the other, other half is pro-Europe. Is this correct? Professor Lars, it's been a very tough eight months uh, here in Chisinau, in the Republic of Moldova, uh, since Russia began its terrible war in Ukraine. And I think I'd start out by saying that I think people here uh, do recognize what is happening in Ukraine and do recognize that Russia is the aggressor. Uh, so I don't think at this point, whether you have a strong feeling about uh, a connection or a relationship with Russia or not is as important as what's been actually happening here. So for the past eight months, as we know, since this terrible war began, uh, Moldova has really been on the front line. It is uh, a state that is, shares a long border uh, with Ukraine, though much of that border is actually in the separatist region of Transnistria, as you mentioned. But what we've seen since the war began is Moldova really stepping up uh, to not only call out uh, what's happening next door in Ukraine, but also, of course, has an amazing reputation now as a host uh, to refugees. Ukrainian refugees have been fleeing this war. So it's an interesting way to start, perhaps, is to give you a little story. On uh, February 24th, when this war began, uh, at six o'clock in the morning, uh, a loud explosion was heard here in Chisinau. And what that actually was, was bombing going on in Odessa. It was a cold and it was a foggy night and somehow the sound managed to travel. So you think about people in Chisinau in the capital waking up to the sound of war actually happening. It was unbelievable to many of us around the world, I think, in spite of the warnings that the United States had been uh, conveying both to the Republic of Moldova, but to all of our partners around the world. But it was really still a shock. And in those next few days and weeks and months, we watched Moldova really spring into action, first and foremost with regard to the refugees. So when you think about refugees coming across those borders in the north and in the south, not so much into Transnistria, but into Moldova proper, then you have 500,000 over the last uh, six months who've come through and into Moldova. Right now, we have a population of about 90,000 Ukrainian refugees who are still here. But almost, as I said, more than 500,000 people passed through Moldova, many on to other destinations. Um, Moldova has now earned its uh, title, I think, of a small country with a big heart, because what we saw were people going out to the border immediately, picking up refugees, bringing them back to their own homes and their own apartments, finding places for them. In fact, 90% of the refugees, the 90,000 who are still here, live with families, with host families. They do not live in any kind of a center. So it's been kind of a remarkable outpouring. 
I think what we've also seen is unfortunately the effect of the war on Moldova's economy, on Moldova's uh, um, way of life and its society. But in spite of all those challenges, this government, the government of Maya Sandu, has been very quick and very direct to call out Russia's aggression in Ukraine. They've taken a very principled stand. They've criticized and condemned the war in Russia all the way through, <clears throat> even most recently, the uh, annexation of the four provinces by Putin in Ukraine. The, uh, the Moldovans came out quickly <clears throat> to condemn that action and say it wasn't, it wasn't correct. So I think we've seen a very strong, uh, a strong reaction and a very negative reaction. People here do have access to media. There's obviously Russian language media as well. Some of it initially coming from, from Moscow, coming directly from uh, the news that we know the Kremlin controls. Uh, but there's an awful lot of independent media. And we saw even in the first few days of the war, those uh, independent media outlets became the most popular outlets in the country because people wanted to know what was happening. So we've got a very difficult situation as we look next door. The war has continued on though. It's, it's not been quite as intense now that Odessa does not seem to be um, under immediate threat as the, Russia has bogged down in its war in the East. Um, but that's, that's been a good thing for Moldova. But the economy continues to be a problem. Inflation over 34%, supply lines have been cut. Um, the trade that went on back and forth between uh, Ukraine and Moldova, much of it was suspended, of course, the uh, lack of being able to use the port in Odessa. Um, so there are so many things that we've seen that have been difficult in the economy that really made it tough uh, for the Moldovans as they've looked at how this war goes on next door. Thank you very much for this uh, insight. Um, is Moldova not in a very difficult situation, torn between Euro uh, Europe and Russia? Um, it is totally gas dependent and energy dependent on Russia. It is also part of its territory is occupied by Russia. So doesn't Putin have an awful lot of blackmail potential and leeway to put pressure on the Moldovan government? That's a very full question. Let me try to take that apart in three different uh, pieces, maybe. Uh, first and foremost, as you mentioned, uh, energy. Energy is a real problem, obviously, for the Republic of Moldova. Uh, as you mentioned, they are 100% or nearly 100% dependent upon sources of Russian uh, energy. Um, it's actually complicated because it's 100% of their gas, their natural gas comes from Gazprom. Uh, that energy, though, interestingly enough, flows through Moldova into the separatist region of Transnistria, where there's a power plant. That gas is made into electricity, and then that electricity is sold back to the rest of Moldova even though the Transnistrians do not pay any money for that gas. So you have a complicated 100% situation with Gazprom. You also have electricity, as I mentioned, is mostly has been for years coming uh, almost exclusively from Transnistria. Though in the last few months, we've seen uh, Moldova turn to its neighbor Ukraine, and it's been able to buy commercially, commercially about 35% of its electricity from Ukraine. So that was a big step as showing that there is a difference um, in, the, in the previous problem where they were 100% dependent. Another thing that happened right after the war was um, the countries of Ukraine and Moldova together disengaged from the Russian electricity grid. They joined ENSOE, the European grid. It was supposed to be a test. Uh, they've never gone back and they've made it work. So in the long run, that's going to be another commercial opportunity, though not today. 
but another way that Europe and, uh, and Ukraine and Moldova are all connected electricity-wise. So that's a very good thing. Um, I think we've also seen uh, a bit, an ability of people in Moldova and the Moldovan government, we've been helping through USAID in particular, to, to help um, Moldovan traders from the government go on to the open market and buy uh, and sell natural gas. So they don't have to be 100% dependent. Um, so that is another thing that's happening right now. The cost is high, but it's a possible way, again, to show that, that there's a difference. So the Gazprom contract continues. Gazprom uh, started on October 1st, again, continued to supply gas, though it cut the amount coming to Moldova by about 30%. So this is a consideration, a concern as we go forward into the winter, but there are options now. And as I mentioned, we can talk further about it if you'd like about how the Moldovans can buy natural gas on the market. With regard to Transnistria, your second part of the question, um, we think of Transnistria, it's a separatist region. It has uh, authorities that they have there. There is a uh, 1500 person um, Russian military contingent there, though frankly, the vast majority of those 1,500 troops are actually Transnistrians or people from the local communities with a small number of Russian officers at the top. Uh, so it's, it's not in our view as an occupied, uh, but yet it's a, a separatist territory that has been supported by Russia over the years, really since uh, right after independence when they had the uh, Transnistria conflict in 1992. So we continue to look to the OSCE and the five plus two talks as the way to continue the discussion. So certainly since Ukraine has cut the border, um, people in Transnistria and, and the authorities there have to deal with the Republic of Moldova and much of their trade and their goods that they're receiving are coming from, from Moldova. So that's a, uh, the second part. I think the third part is we think about whether Moldova is really at risk. Um, from military action by Russia. As we've seen, certainly in the last few months, um, that seems less and less likely as Russia has been constrained and unable to uh, make um, any kind of progress in Ukraine itself. But we also see that there's very little risk. We don't have any kind of information that we would certainly share with uh, Moldova and others if we had it, that there was some kind of military move. Uh, I think you're right, though. At the end of the day, Russia still has an awful lot of levers here and ways to, ways to influence people. And part of that is because they have for years had cultural ties, uh, trading ties, uh, in addition to Transnistria. So there are a number of ways that Russia can influence things. What we've seen over the past year, though, in the past uh, few years, is that Moldova's found ways to be increasingly independent. So whether it's energy, finding alternative sources, whether it's Transnistria, and working with the, uh, the authorities there on, on really people to people issues, trying to make things better for people, uh, whether it's trading relationships. Uh, trade uh, is almost now going, um, the vast majority goes to the EU. Um, that is the major trading partner, uh, certainly the valuable trade that goes back and forth. And the trade that did exist, much of it has been cut off by this war. So for example, apples used to be sold to Russia and Belarus. That was the number one market for Moldovan apples. And we've seen more and more apples going both to Europe and also Moldova looking for other places to sell. So these are all reasons and ways that you see that Moldova is not exactly the dependent state it once was. Thank you. What was the uh, Russian uh, reaction when uh, Moldova became a candidate member uh, of the European Union in June this year? And also, what was the reaction of the pro-Russian part of the Moldovan population? 
Well, it's a complicated question. Uh, for many years, many different parties, many political forces have talked about getting closer to the European Union. And as I mentioned before, in many practical ways, it's already happening. You see the trading routes, the trading um, routes that have been established have really gone to the European Union. That's where Moldova is able to sell its most valuable goods, its most valuable crops. Much of the connection in the service industry and the, indus and the light industry they have here is connected to Europe. So over the years, frankly, thanks in ways to, uh, to Russia, for example, the 2006 and 2013 bans on the export of wine to Russia has basically uh, turned into Moldova into a high quality wine producing country that sells to much more uh, lucrative markets in Europe and the West. So some of those things have actually happened naturally. Uh, I think that that is really what's drawing uh, Moldova more towards Europe uh, the vast majority of people when they elected this government, uh, the current Sandu government and the parliament that followed, they ran on a very uh, important platform of political and economic reform, but it also had uh, as part of its uh, platform further and deeper integration into Europe. So when we saw the candidate status uh, be granted in June, um, that was obviously a goal of this government that the majority of people here had voted for. Um, I think that Russia, of course, has, uh, was um, responding in the way it usually does, is questioning whether this was something in Moldova's interest. Uh, but I think the vast majority of people here still believe it's the right thing, the right thing to do and in the long term, the way to go. There are certainly questions um, people have. Uh, some communities are still um, wondering what it will mean for Moldova's um, sovereignty, for Moldova's future. So those questions are all part of, I think, a national discussion that's going on right now. How realistic is it that Moldova will really end up in the EU, perhaps together with Ukraine? There is, apart from the you know, Russian factor, there's also a lot of anxiety about the high level of corruption and other economic deficiencies and legal deficiencies in Moldova, which obviously need to be cleared up. So how realistic is Moldova's EU membership? There, obviously, we're not a member of the EU, so I can't give any kind of professional, uh, this is the, how you get in or don't get in. But what we see is a committed government and a, a commitment that we saw even starting in uh, May and June, uh, as you know, to become a candidate country in the European Union, you have to fill out hundreds of pages of a questionnaire uh, to describe your readiness, to describe your commitment. Moldova was able to do that very quickly. Um, they now know that they have to move ahead. They have nine conditions that uh, are there are required to fulfill on their road to uh, membership, uh, even to just uh, secure their candidate status. So by the end of next year, when the European Union will have a report on how Moldova is doing, they're committed to making progress on these nine conditions. Five of them are in the judicial reform area. As you mentioned, that's a very important issue. This government also came to power, I think, frankly, because um, people were fed up with corruption and fed up with a uh, captured state for 30 years and they wanted the government to work for them. So anti-corruption, judicial reform has been a key, a cornerstone really of this government's view. So we and the international community have all been working together to support uh, whatever we can do. In particular, when I think about judicial reform, let me give you just one example of uh, the pre-vetting process is going on. And that's a process that we, uh, three international judges, along with three Moldovan judges, are taking a look at candidates for vacancies in the very highest uh, Moldovan courts right now. 
they will go through the uh, basically the CVs of the candidates and they will then rule on whether these candidates are clean. Are they non-corrupt people who should be considered for, uh, for these open positions? So it's called pre-vetting. And we hope that will go uh, very well over the next few months. And then they're going to move to vetting, which is actually a tougher thing because it's taking a look at sitting judges and then trying to analyze whether they are corrupt, whether they have, uh, have been corrupt in their, in their history or their time on the bench. So this is just one of the ways that they're trying to make progress to really remake uh, a judiciary that is not corrupt. Um, Moldova is militarily a neutral country. Now it is joining the EU, which in the case of other former Soviet republics has deeply worried the Russians. Will Moldova's next step be an application to become a member of NATO? Think of neutral Sweden, uh, which has just joined or is about to join. So will that be Moldova's next step as well? That's obviously a decision for Moldova. But what we see is that they are, as you mentioned, a constitutionally neutral country. Uh, the United States certainly respects that. I think our members and partners in NATO respect that. Uh, Moldova, like many other countries that are not uh, seeking membership right now, do have relationships with NATO. They work with NATO. Uh, they cooperate with NATO. Um, in many ways, NATO is the gold standard for how to uh, reform and have a modern military. I think what's more interesting right now in Moldova is there's a debate in society a discussion perhaps for the first time in 30 years that again, Vladimir Putin in this war in Ukraine have started, which is what kind of army should a militarily, a neutral country have? Uh, how do you militarily protect yourselves if you're a neutral country? In the past, I think there was a feeling that neutrality was how you protected yourself. And as a result, we saw very little investment in the armed, armed forces here in Moldova. And over the last few months, there's been a real commitment. The government has increased the budget, As you know, the EU and the United States have both uh, increased our military assistance. And in, in particular, we're trying to help the military really reorganize and reform into a modern military that would give, uh, give some kind of um, protection to the Republic of Moldova, but would also have a military that does the kinds of things that militaries in our country and other countries do, uh, working on disaster assistance or humanitarian relief or where you call the military for assistance. But of course, part of it will also be um, to, to say that you are defending your country. So that debate is going on right now. It's something that you've heard uh, President Sandu and others in the government have been very direct and clear in making the argument why they need a strong military, why they need to invest in the military. But there's been no conversation and no discussion or proposal of joining NATO. I mean, Montenegro is a small country with a small army. And of course, it recently or a few years ago joined NATO. So far, uh, Moldova only has an army of something like fewer than 5,000 uh, 5, soldiers, I believe. So uh, maybe Moldova may think that it needs NATO. NATO probably doesn't need Moldova, but the other way around, possibly. And these are longer term questions. I think that, that the country and the people of Moldova will have to decide. But what we really see is, again, the conversation is, do we need an army? How do we need an army? What do we need an army for? How much should we protect and support our military reform process? Uh, we've been pleased to see that the government is committed to doing this. We think it's the right thing. And I think we and the European Union and other allies like the UK are all interested in helping where we can. Mm -hmm. Uh, tell us about the relationship between Moldova and Romania. Moldova used to be part of Romania in the interwar years, and I think there are Russian fears 
that uh, some sort of reunification between the two countries may occur. Is that really on the table or uh, what, are, what is the relationship today? Look, uh, Romania and the Republic of Moldova, as you mentioned, have long history. Uh, there is a common language, uh, though not everyone in the Republic of Moldova, in particular in the Transnistrian region, uh, are Romanian language speakers. Um, but what we see is, frankly, the push, the encouragement, the interest in integrating uh, with the European Union and integrating with Europe. That's going to be how uh, Romania and Moldova are going to be working together as partners within the European Union. We know Romania is a strong supporter of Moldova within the European Union, uh, supports working closely together. Uh, Romania has assistance programs here, uh, works closely, and the two governments have had intergovernmental uh, cabinet meetings and have worked closely together on a number of areas. Uh, but they, the real focus for both countries, I would argue right now in their future, is the European Union. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Can you tell us more about the, um, the way the people of Moldova Uh, uh, handle the Transnistria question, because there are other frozen conflicts, like in Georgia, uh, South Ossetia and Abkhazia, where there is a very strict border and extremely difficult to actually go to that territory. That's very different with Transnistria. As you said, there is very lively uh, uh, trade between uh, Moldova and Transnistria. How, so how do the people of Moldova deal with that strange, unique situation in Uh, you're right. It is a strange and unique situation, but in many ways it is a frozen conflict that is uh, like no other. Um, as you mentioned before, I've worked in Georgia, for example, and certainly people are not able to access on a regular basis uh, South Ossetia or Abkhazia, those parts of Georgia which are um, either in separatist declared or under Russian control. Um, what you see here is a much more open um, situ situation. Uh, where people do go back and forth. Many people have family on each of the banks of the river. Uh, and you remember, you have a very mixed ethnic population here in the Republic of Moldova. You have Russians, you have Ukrainians, you have Moldovans, uh, you have Bulgarians, you have the Galgoos, the ethnic Turks. You have many, many people who identify in different ways uh, with ethnic groups that are also Moldovans. Um, so it's just an, it's a, it's a unique situation. Some of it has to do with the energy connections. As, you, as we talked about, um, for example, most of the electricity for Moldova is generated in Transnistria, in the Transnistrian separatist region. But they do go back and forth. People go back and forth. Um, I think uh, even the most uh, famous um, tra Transnistrian uh, soccer team, Sharif, who plays in the world, uh, what is it, the Champions League, Uh, they play in the Moldovan League. They have to play in the Moldovan League. To be in the Champions League, you have to play under a flag, and they play under the Moldovan flag. So it is a very unique situation. Where we've looked at it as an international partner of Moldova's is to look at this through the 5 plus 2 process for the OSCE. And even though it's hard to imagine today Ukraine and Russia sitting down and talking about the future of Moldova and Transnistria, how Transnistria fits into Moldova, and we have a very... Uh, strong and unchanging policy that we think there should be a special status for Transnistria within the Republic of Moldova. That's the ultimate answer for this, uh, the, the long-term solution of this settlement uh, or finding a settlement for the problem. But you do see 
the OSCE spending a lot of time working on people problems. So how do you make sure medicine can flow back and forth? What kind of license plates do people need? So how do farmers get to their fields if they're on the opposite side of the river and in, in, within the security zone? So we see the Moldovans, we see the OSCE, and we see the international partners among who we are one of trying to help people in their everyday, uh, everyday life too. But you're right, it's a very unusual frozen conflict where there's a lot of back and forth uh, across this administrative, uh, administrative boundary line. When I was in Transnistria recently, it reminded me of East Germany in the 1980s. You know, a quite well-developed, but not quite a, a modern Western society. There were lots of Soviet symbols, <laughs> Soviet signs, so you felt back uh, in, in the past. Right, but we also know that many people in uh, Transnistria and the separatist region have multiple passports. They travel freely. Many have Moldovan passports. Many have Russian or Ukrainian passports uh, because, of course, Transnistria is not recognized. So they know they need to be able to travel, to be able to engage in the world. Um, they they have use other passports. They also are able to access um, uh, television, the Internet, not always in exactly the same way. But they have access to information. And that's another difference, I think, in, in how they... They look at the world, how they look at Moldova. They know what's happening in the rest of the country. Would you say there's a chance that Russia may decide it's not worth the effort to be in Transnistria and give up on it again? I think it's hard to tell what will happen next, but I think there is an opportunity here because one of the things that's always been uh, in Transnistria's interest is to have kind of open access to trade. And they've always been um, known as a place that was outside of, banking regulations, outside of laws, outside of regulations. And with a, a long uh, open border with Ukraine and another long uh, administrative line, which with checkpoints, but pretty free access back and forth with the rest of Moldova, um, you had a, a, a basically a, a so-called government that was in, in making money. <laughs> Let's put it just bluntly, making money. And now that the border has been closed with Ukraine, they've really been forced to deal with the Moldovan authorities, the people who are there, including the so-called authorities of Transnistria. So I think that may open an opportunity in the longer run when we see uh, how Ukraine comes out of this war, which we hope very much they will uh, be victorious and regain their territory. There may be an opportunity again, we hope to, uh, to really look at this conflict and find a political settlement. Thank you. Tell us a little bit more about the economic situation in the rest of Moldova. It's not good. The high rate of unemployment, economic growth is stalling, to put it kindly. There are plenty of economic and, of course, as you mentioned, energy problems. So what is being done? Isn't that weakening the state? The economy has really struggled uh, since uh, first um, started about the energy crisis last year when Gazprom changed its contract. Then, of course, the government and the people of Moldova, like everywhere, have been struggling with COVID, um, trying to uh, have interaction with the rest of the world. And then, of course, this war in Ukraine, Russia's war, has really taken a toll uh, on Moldova's economy. We know Moldova just uh, lowered its growth forecast to 0% uh, for the next year, or the year, this end of this year. It's got 34% inflation. Uh, the international community is working hard to find ways to support uh, the Republic of Moldova. They have a very good IMF package. The International Monetary Fund is supporting uh, the budget. 
the economy is is working. Uh, the so many people are still not in the official economy. That's a different problem. But we try very hard to find ways to encourage people to find a life in the Republic of Moldova to see a career. So one of the areas, for example, we're working on is really finding ways to support the IT industry. It's quite large here. It's actually growing very quickly. People in Moldova see it as a good career, a, a good income you can make, and then you see a, a future for your family. So a lot of that's I've covered a lot in the service industry. Uh, agriculture is also improving. Uh, we're seeing more and more techniques. That's another area USAID is working in. Um, the wine industry has been a huge success, uh, just a, a very small amount of the agricultural production, but a very high value on what is actually produced and sold and exported. So there are bright spots. I think the goal is to continue to find ways to keep the government and the people and the economy of Moldova moving and trying to, to, uh, to maintain where it is and not, uh, not go down any further. But as we know, one of the struggles that Moldova's had over the last 30 years is out migration. Uh, many Moldovans live outside of the country because they've gone to look for uh, better economic opportunities. And so that is something this government is focused on and that's something the international community, including the US is very focused on as well. How can we help this economy recover, uh, find new areas of growth and, uh, and help people want to stay in the Republic of Moldova? Mm -hmm. And the way to do that is to go to Romania and from there to the rest of the EU and perhaps to the US, or how is it being done? As people have left over the years, they've gone to many places. Now, the US is actually a small community in uh, diasporans uh, compared to Europe. Uh, Italian and Romanian have a very close language, um, as well as Romanians, of course, and Moldovan-speaking Romanian. So over the years, many people have gone to uh, the EU via Romania and have stayed there. What we're finding now is that the goal is to find ways to look to younger people. So we've really spent a lot of time and effort uh, in the schools. For example, we have a future classrooms program. We have an amazing number of robotics and Lego challenges and, and uh, all kinds of interesting things on virtual reality. We set up a gaming and a virtual reality kind of major uh, at the art core, uh, which is something we built in the United States. So we're finding ways to try to reach the younger people to encourage them to stay. What you've also found in the diasporans who've left is many people have left, but their families have stayed. So children are raised here with grandparents or one parent has gone to Europe. So it's also trying to find opportunities for people to want to stay here and raise their family here. Mm -hmm. I understand that the problem in Moldova is less an ethnic problem, like a Russian population, but more a generational problem. Would you agree with that? Um, it is definitely not an, a Russian problem or an, an ethnic problem. It is definitely a problem of economic opportunity. So if that's, if that's the way to put it, yes, I think that's been the biggest struggle. And economic opportunity, I'd link that together with corruption. And so the effort on anti-corruption, of course, finding uh, investors, for example, it's very difficult if you don't think that when you invest your money and something happens that you can go to a court of law and get a fair shake. I mean, that's fundamental for all of us. So that's another area why this development of the economy and judicial reform and anti-corruption efforts are all really have to work hand in hand. Mm -hmm. Thank you. You have had, as I mentioned at the beginning, you have had a very varied and successful career. You've been posted to many countries. 
And your last country was uh, Berlin, Germany, before coming to Moldova. What's the difference regarding your job? You were also ambassador in Germany or Chargé d'Affaires, your ambassador now. So officially, the job is just the same, but I'm sure there are many differences. Well, it's been a long uh, and very fruitful career. I'm glad you say it was successful. I appreciate that. Uh, we've enjoyed it. Um, I decided to join the Foreign Service uh, out of um, graduate school. I worked for a little bit on Capitol Hill for my senator. I'm from the state of Pennsylvania and uh, took the test and found myself in the Foreign Service. I was fortunate early on in my career to meet my wife, who is also a diplomat. And so the two of us together over the past uh, 35 years have uh, really been around the world. But we've, we've really concentrated in the former Soviet Union. We uh, entered in uh, the late 80s. And it was a perfect time as the Soviet Union broke up to study Russian and to work here. So in addition to working in Washington on these issues, we've lived in Kazakhstan, in Georgia, in Ukraine, and now uh, here in Moldova. Um, in Germany was where I actually started my career. And I think that the work in many ways, you're right, it's very different depending on where you are and what you're exactly focusing on and what kind of partnerships you have and whether you have assistance programs, uh, whether you're working <clears throat> on uh, military to military ties, it, it just depends. And I think what we've found in our career is what's really important as a diplomat is the engagement with people. So whether you're in Germany or whether you're in Moldova, the more you talk to people, the more you can understand, the more you can listen uh, to hear what people have to say and what they think uh, our relationship should be about, the better you'll be. So yes, while it's different, uh, the jobs, yeah, the titles are the same, Uh, certainly the lifestyles can be different, but much of the fundamental work that we do, the reason most of us join uh, the State Department and the Foreign Service is to represent our country. Uh, it's to take that feeling of pride overseas, uh, but also to, because we're curious and we want to learn about other people. Uh, I found the longer I've done this, the less interested I am in travel because it's so unsatisfying. You need to live somewhere. <laughs> When you live somewhere, you really get to understand the place, you get to understand people. Uh, a quick visit is sometimes uh, less satisfying than actually living somewhere. So it's been a great career. Can you, thank you. Can you deal with Transnistria or are you restricted to Moldova excluding Transnistria? Uh, no, um, Republic of Moldova includes the separatist region of Transnistria. I visited twice uh, in the last few months. I have met the, uh, the leadership Uh, I've also been lucky enough to go to a USAID program where we're working with a farmer in Transnistria. Uh, we have an American house, American center there with the university where people are able to come in and connect in with the United States, which is great. I've met some of the alumni um, of our programs. So again, in this interesting world, um, the people who live in Transnistria are Moldovans and can uh, participate in our exchange program. So we have every year, a couple of students go to high school in America for a year. We've had an English teaching fellow for the Fulbright program who's been able to live in, uh, in the separatist region. And most recently I was there, I visited the Jewish community in uh, Tiraspol, which was, had a very interesting history and of course, very difficult history uh, over the years in, uh, in Moldova, as we know many, many uh, people lost their lives during the Holocaust here. But there were no problems for you to cross the unofficial border, but you had to show your passport, I take it. Uh, no, we have a, an identity card from Moldova. I'm registered here as a diplomat in Moldova. So again, I think that shows the connections between uh, all parts of Moldova. Right, okay. And um, 
I understand that North Carolina has got a very special relationship to Moldova because there is a program by the U.S. State Department to connect the individual American states to various countries in the world. Perhaps tell us more about it. Uh, we're so proud of this program that exists between the Republic of Moldova and North Carolina. And it's so great that you mentioned Secretary of State Marshall, uh, but so many people who are involved because that's what's really taken this program uh, to an unbelievable level of engagement between people in North Carolina and the Republic of Moldova. So 25 years ago, uh, the State Department and the Department of Defense decided that it would be a great program to pair national guards from different states with individual countries in the former Soviet Union. Now that program is spread all around the world, but in the beginning, that was an idea. So in Moldova, North Carolina was the partner. Uh, in Ukraine, California, in Georgia, Georgia, obviously. Uh, Kazakhstan was Texas. And so you found these relationships between militaries that were struggling to find their post-Soviet um, identity and work on reforms and National Guard units. And in particular, National Guard units often brought things like disaster resistance, humanitarian assistance. How did you do some of those things and work uh, as a, a full military? What, and that's been very successful around the world. And North Carolina now is partner not only to Moldova, but also to Botswana. But what's happened in the 25 years in Moldova is that I would say led by the Secretary of State and a number of really interested citizens there's been a real people-to-people -people engagement over the years. So we find people from North Carolina who have brought their talents, who've brought their interests, uh, whether they're helping on the humanitarian assistance side, they're interested in supporting schools, they're interested in supporting uh, reconstruction of schools or public places. But then we also have all the way to people who have decided to set up nursing programs and have taken their expertise from North Carolina and set up a whole program of nursing, which we never had here in the Republic of Moldova. Uh, people who worked on the medical library side, who've been able to connect um, medical students here in the Republic of Moldova with all of your great resources through the library system uh, online, electronically, of all of the, United, of, of the uh, North Carolina, University of North Carolina library systems. So it's been a really remarkable, remarkable partnership. We've also been able to send people from Moldova to uh, visit North Carolina, to learn from North Carolinians about their government, about universities. We just had five parliamentarians from the Republic of Moldova's parliament, just spent uh, three weeks in North Carolina through the Open World Program to learn about how uh, national level leaders should engage with state level and local officials. So we have that continual um, exchange back and forth and we're so grateful for it. Uh, we consider North Carolinians really our partners um, in the work that we do here to support the US-Moldovan relationship. And uh, we're very, I think all the more richer for it. That's um, pretty good to hear. So if our students wanted to come to Moldova, they would be welcomed by you personally with open arms. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, we have a great relationship back and forth. We have about 45 students a year from Moldova who spend a year in American high schools through the, through the FLEX program. Uh, we also have um, Peace Corps here, and that's been uh, a long-standing program. It's unfortunately was suspended during COVID, but we're in the process of standing that back up. So we're going to have volunteers again. So that's another way that North Carolinians can join and, uh, and be supportive of what's happening in the Republic of Moldova through our Peace Corps uh, connection. 
But frankly, we just have many, many individuals who find connections to non-governmental organizations, nonprofits, or working with the National Guard Partnership Program uh, to find their way to Moldova. I can tell you, all you have to do is mention North Carolina to any Moldovan and they'll immediately uh, bring to mind somebody they know or some connection they've made. It's really quite, uh, quite remarkable. Great, that's good to hear. Before we open it up to questions, can I ask you a more general question about the geopolitical situation we're finding us in right now? How is the war going to end? What has changed regarding the European security architecture at present and possibly for the foreseeable future? I mean, I know it's speculation, but I'm sure you've thought deeply about it, how it can all continue once we have overcome that current turmoil and war. Professor, this sounds like something I'd have to write in my exam booklet. It sounds very difficult. <laughs> um, I think maybe you have the better knowledge here. But if I look into my crystal ball, I think right now what we're seeing is it's a, it's a, a remarkable moment. Uh, unfortunately, uh, many of our assumptions, uh, well, the last 30 years since the breakup of the Soviet Union, but I argue all the way back to the end of World War II, many of those assumptions are now under question. Uh, what is the order going to look like? How will we come out of this war? How will it end? When will it end? Um, I think it's really taken a lot of people by surprise, pleasantly, that Ukraine has pushed back, has been able to fight back and have been able to defend and now regain some of its territory. But I think the bigger questions are uh, very much out there for us. I, I noticed today President Sandu is in Prague and she's at this meeting of the European political community that uh, President Macron came up with, which is EU members plus the UK plus others who are interested in being part of Europe. And they're, I think, grappling with exactly the problem that you're talking about, is what is the order going to look like? What does it look like when we're thinking about Russia not as part of the, the community or part of the solution, which is how I think many of us considered this over the past 30 years for sure. Uh, now, what is it going to look like going forward? And how do we maintain security? And what does security look like? So I don't have the answers yet, but I definitely am watching the, uh, the different groups of countries. The United States is part of this discussion, and we're all trying to figure out what things will look like. But at the same time, we think that our institutions, whether it's NATO, the European Union, the OSCE, all of them have played a role in, in really coming together and showing the unity that has been needed in Europe. And I think the Republic of Moldova has very much felt that support and felt that unity from the West in their support. Thank you very much. Of course, there are plenty of challenges within the European Union, within the transatlantic alliance. We think of the recent elections in Italy, the elections in Bul uh, Bulgaria, some outliers, often Hungary, Poland, other countries. So it is. it remains challenging, and uh, we have plenty of questions who would like to probe you further. Perhaps I can ask right. Will to ask the first question. Hi. Um, we have a question uh, from a Russian language student here at UNC. Um, over the summer, uh, they conducted an independent research on the Transnistrian conflict, um, and their question is, Compared to previous administrations, how has the Sandu government interacted with the PMR? And do you believe that, that the Moldovan accession to the EU could escalate or potentially unfreeze the conflict? Uh, these are big questions. Uh, I certainly think that um, this administration 
uh, has been committed to continuing the dialogue, to continuing the discussion within the OSCE 5 plus 2 framework. Um, there's no question about that. They've had strong deputy uh, prime ministers who've led the negotiating team, and they've continued to work closely with the OSCE chairman in office, um, in this case, Poland, uh, to figure out ways to keep those people-to-people -people discussions going, even when it's clear that we're not going to see Russia and Ukraine sitting at the table together uh, in the near future talking about the future of Transnistria. Um, I think as far as the European Union, um, the connections have been there. Remember, uh, we have had for now the last five years or so the deep and comprehensive free trade agreement. Uh, people who have Moldovan passports have free access to enter the European Union. There's certainly been a lot more um, back and forth with goods um, and trade. Uh, so all those things continue. So I don't think that the candidate status is really going to fundamentally change that relationship in the direction uh, which Moldova has been moving over the last decade, which is closer uh, towards the integration with Europe. I think what you've seen with the Sandu government is just an acceleration. And then you'd almost say a hyperdrive uh, or warp drive, uh, thinking about how the war in Ukraine um, accelerated the timeline, uh, putting uh, Moldova and Ukraine's uh, request to be a candidate country uh, much, much higher and much faster on the agenda than we had thought. Thank you very much. Leila, would you have the next question? Yes, of course. I just want to say thank you, Ambassador, for your insights. It was really interesting. So with that, Pasut Tatavin Sansuk is asking, is there any interest on part of the Moldovan government to solve the Transnistrian question militarily or otherwise? Is it an important political question to achieve territorial integrity as a unitary state, or are people generally content with the status quo? It's a great question. Thank you. Um, obviously, the government is absolutely committed to a political and peaceful settlement of the solution. Uh, frankly, there has not been, and again, fortunately, not been any kind of military uh, engagement between the two. And I think that there's a sense that it would be very hard to have a military takeover from one side or the other. Um, so the commitment is there. The commitment is there to maintain uh, the negotiations and the discussions. I think, uh, like the United States has always said, we believe and support the territorial integrity of the Republic of Moldova. We'll do whatever we can to support that. And I think people here would like to see that, uh, that, that conflict resolved uh, peacefully and within a, a way that, that allows Moldova to have its territorial integrity. Um, I think at the same time, people are used to the status quo. And they realize that this is not an overnight process. And certainly after 30 years, it's not. But um, as we just talked about, and the professor mentioned, with the whole reassessment of European security and how the end of the war in Ukraine is not yet known, it is possible that there may be an opening. Hopefully that would uh, help um, all the parties, in particular the Republic of Moldova, resolve this conflict and restore its territorial integrity. Thank you very much. Willow. We have a couple folks asking this question, um, but simply, has the war in Ukraine affected support for unification with Romania? The war in Ukraine has not, I, I would say, um, been at all part of that discussion. It's been much more the, the two discussions that we've had. One is about what does a neutral country do with a military? Does it need a military? What kind of support does it have? That's been the bigger conversation. And then secondly, as I mentioned, the real issue here is integration with Europe and the fact that they are candidate status um, and now have that candidate status is just going to further 
uh, I think, to work towards moving Moldova toward Europe and toward the European Union. So it's been much more of a discussion about Europe, uh, less of a discussion about Romania. Thank you very much, Leila. Uh, yes, um, Irina Gigova was wondering uh, more so about Moldova in historical sense. So she was wondering if you have a sense of how the Soviet Union is assessed in history textbooks, particularly in secondary education, and to what extent to which the Soviet past is present in public and political discourse. Yeah, I'm going to take the second one more than the first. I'm not a student in school, so it's hard for me to say exactly what is in the textbooks and how it's discussed. But like many countries, and I've worked here for most of my career, uh, there's always a certain uh, amount of this nostalgia, uh, nostalgia for the old, um, old times, the Soviet period. Um, it's become rosy in history, and there is an older population that has struggled in the new world and found it hard to, to do. But we've done some studies. Uh, we've actually supported some work on trying to help people see what was the actual Soviet past, what did it look like, helping them to remember, and certainly the younger people who don't have any personal experience of what it was like to live in the Soviet Union. Um, we've been working with Radio Free Europe uh, over the past few years on this big project, and we're just starting it again because we want people to remember um, what connects them, fair enough, but also what it really was like, and it wasn't a, a rosy past. So I think people have a pretty... Um, a pretty solid grasp here of what, what the past was like and what the problems were in the Soviet past. And there's a real pride, I think, in, uh, in the Republic of Moldova and its uh, independence now, 30 years old. Mm -hmm. Is uh, that nostalgia or limited nostalgia to uh, Soviet times, is that reflected in the party political setup in uh, Moldova? It's actually interesting only in terms of right and left or conservative and liberal. So when we think of right and left in the U.S., we think of it in a certain way. Here in Moldova, when you speak of, of right or conservative party like PASS, which is the current party in power, uh, they consider themselves like uh, the Christian Democrats of Germany. They're part of the European People's Party. They're, they're considered a, a conservative government. Um, here, when you talk about left, uh, it means more socialist or communist um, direction. So there is a socialist communist bloc in parliament, for example, but there are other parties that are on both sides of the spectrum. But it is the history that kind of, I think, calls it right and left here, which is conservative or more socialist. Thank you. Willow, would you have the next question? Uh, a few themes that, that we've heard um, throughout this talk is that of autonomy and independence. Um, and so we have a question from uh, Chad uh, Rodemir, um, who asks, could you talk about Moldova's debt uh, to Russia's Gazprom and how that affects the current political moment? Yeah, that is a really difficult question. Um, and the debt is something that is not agreed between uh, Russia and Moldova. So as I mentioned, they've been receiving gas now over the 30 years of independence. And it comes into Moldova and then the gas pipe can also go in into Transnistria. Moldova has paid for gas over the years, um, but the gas that has gone to the Transnistrian separatist region has gone directly there and there's been no payment for that gas. That, so the Transnistrian uh, leadership has never had to pay for it. That gas goes directly to the power plant which is the only one in Moldova. And then the electricity is made and the electricity is then um, sold to the rest of the Republic of Moldova. Transnistrian authorities who can charge for electricity or gas 
can do that, but they haven't paid for it coming in. The argument is what is then the debt? And uh, Gazprom has taken the position that the government of the Republic of Moldova owes the debt for the entire territory. And so the argument has been, how much is that debt? Is that really fair? Is that what they owe? Um, as part of the most recent agreement between Gazprom and Moldova that was signed last year in November of 2021, there was uh, an agreement that there would be an audit by an international, uh, internationally recognized company who would take a look at the debt. Uh, the, de the deadline for that debt um, audit was May of 2022. That deadline is passed. Um, it was difficult for Moldova, especially during the war, to, uh, the height of the war, to find a reputable international company that would come in and do the audit. Uh, that has now been uh, um, fixed. They have an, a company that's working on the audit and they expect that to come uh, as a final report sometime in the spring of 2023. The Moldovans have explained why it's taken longer to set this up. Um, Gazprom has not honestly actually responded one way or another but it is technically a breach of the contract that they haven't fulfilled the audit. Um, so we have, uh, again, encouraged them to continue with that path. They are talking to Gazprom as part of the contract, but there is this large debt that at some point will have to be uh, discussed and will probably be part of any negotiated uh, final settlement for uh, Transnistria. Thank you. Isn't also plenty of electricity coming from Ukraine to Moldova, something like 30%? And is the, how is that being paid for? Uh, being paid for directly by, by reserves. The government is paying uh, the cost. And of course, the, the consumers here are paying their electricity bills and gas bills. And that goes back into the, uh, the government coffers. What we know, though, is gas prices here, energy prices overall, are about five times higher than a year ago. So obviously, consumers are struggling. The government last winter put into a place a subsidy program for all consumers. This year, they have better data and they're working for the most vulnerable consumers. They've come up with a fund that they're setting up that will help uh, people who are on the poor end of the spectrum or the poor end will be able to get additional assistance from the government. Uh, they've also gotten a lot of assistance from the international community to try help to, to help pay for this, but um, they've gotten budget support from the European Union. Uh, from some individual countries, they've been able to use those funds. But they're paying for the electricity from Ukraine, the 35% you mentioned, in cash. Uh, and Ukraine is willing to continue that, or haven't they threatened to actually cut that off? That's a question right now. As we know, uh, Ukrainian uh, energy supplies are under threat. They're concerned in particular about electricity production, as we all know the story of Zaporizhia and the power plant. So that's obviously a concern. Uh, right now, there is a commitment to, uh, to supply and sell some electricity to Moldova, but that will be continually negotiated and discussed. So uh, through the next week or so, um, they'll have that, but they're still talking right now about whether, that, uh, whether Ukraine will be in a position uh, to continue selling electricity to Moldova and to others, actually. They're not, Moldova's not the only customer. Yeah, thank you. Lelia, would you have the next question? Uh, yes, Charles Konkolix wants to know, as Moldova integrates more closely into European affairs, do you think uh, this will stem a reaction from Russia? And if so, what will it be? Again, I think we've seen Moldova moving towards Europe and moving towards integrating into European affairs, not just with the candidate status, but of course, the deep and comprehensive uh, free trade agreement uh, over the years. We know uh, that uh, the Russian government has not been um, 
supportive of countries that have been moving toward the West, whether it's countries that are already part of the European Union, uh, just countries that have moved to, uh, further to the West. So we continue to expect that there will be criticism, but the commitment, uh, the majority of the people who voted for this government are committed to closer ties to Europe, and that's where they see their futures with Europe. Thanks very much. Uh, and Willow, please, the next question. Uh, we have a question from Deborah Lincoln. Um, can you comment on the status of healthcare in Moldova um, and specifically about the nursing and physician workforce and their uh, capacity to provide for Moldova Moldovan citizens and refugees? Uh, as I mentioned, the, the medical care here can be good, but it's also under pressure. Uh, resources is always a problem. One of the things that the government has done very well, though, is made sure that Ukrainian refugees were able to access uh, healthcare here, um, uh, like any Moldovan citizen. And they made sure that they tried to be very fair about it. So Ukrainian refugees were able to get to uh, medical aid if they needed it, but not more than Moldovan citizens as well. So they've tried to play that very carefully. The UN is here, UNHCR has a large presence now and has been working closely with the government to try to support refugees. So that's one small part of this. Uh, otherwise, in the healthcare system, um, there is obviously some good healthcare and there are some excellent experts, but there is under-resourced uh, healthcare facilities across the board. This is still a former uh, Soviet country um, that has some uh, challenges within the hospital and healthcare system. Uh, we've been so grateful with this North Carolina nursing program because it's an, an area they just didn't have full-time professional nurses. They had aides in hospitals uh, to work with doctors. So again, you find individuals, you find equipment here, but overall uh, the hospitals um, could certainly do more with uh, more resources and more support um, and uh, more equipment and uh, as healthcare hopefully will continue to improve. Uh, poverty is quite a big problem in Moldova. I recently read up to almost half of the population are close to poverty or threatened by extreme poverty. Uh, is that true? And what is being done to, to, to deal with that? No, that's right, Professor. Many people um, find that they, they really um, survive by partly having family and friends in the villages where food can be purchased um, But it is a problem. It's part of the economic issues here. And what we've seen is the inflation and the energy prices, the high energy prices, are actually pushing those numbers higher, as you mentioned, and potentially up to 50% of the population. Um, so the government and the international community is trying to support the government in this effort to try to um, support the most vulnerable. So whether that's through the UN uh, family, whether that's through individual donors, partly through the European Union, And of course, a, a strong commitment from the government to take care of the most vulnerable in the community. So yes, it's a problem. Uh, Europe, uh, sorry, Moldova is often known or quickly kind of mentioned as the poorest country in Europe. And that is something that they've struggled with. And again, the war in Ukraine has not helped. It's actually made the situation worse. Yeah, thank you. I'm just reading a message from Elaine Marshall, who pointed out that there are there's actually a documentary available in 25 episodes about the close partnership between North Carolina and Moldova. I will try to put the link into the chat function, and if it works, yes. everyone should see the link. I certainly yes. didn't want to not to mention that. I wasn't aware. Thanks. It yeah, thank you to thank you to Elaine for mentioning that something the U.S. government supported here through our public diplomacy section, um, a project that we wanted to have episodes made here, and now we're in the process of getting that uh, aired in North Carolina so Americans can see it as well. Thank you very much. 
Uh, and uh, Leila, the next question, please. Uh, yes, of course. David Jermal uh, mentions his um, experience as a Peace Corps volunteer near the capital, and he was talking about uh, the support provided to Ukrainian refugees. So with that, he was wondering if you have any suggestions to we as listeners who want to help Moldova deal with this humanitarian challenge. Yeah, it's it's certainly something that uh, that is important to do. Uh, the international community, including Americans, uh, were amazing in their support for Ukrainian refugees um, that came to Moldova, but came to many countries. Um, it's not possible for me to actually choose or, or recommend uh, charity, but there are certainly um, reputable U.S. charities that are working on Moldova and working on Ukrainian refugees. You can find those if they're a 501c3, as you say. Um, that means it's a reputable uh, charity, and you should be able to find that information online. Uh, there are a number that are working. There are also a number of non-governmental organizations, um, many quite well known, uh, that you can find that are working in Moldova that you could also support, um, and of course the UN family. Thank you very much, Willow. Do, you, do we have some more questions? We are working you very hard today. I hope you. I know it's I late at night here. I'm still with you, though. I know. Thank you. Maybe we'll uh, go on with a few more questions. Another maybe five to ten minutes before we totally exhaust you. All right. Fair enough. Thanks very much, Willow. Would you have another question? Uh, we have a question from Stuart Rossler. Um, who's heard that NATO is, has been interested in negotiating with Ukraine on joining um, NATO despite Ukraine having a foreign military base on their territory. Um, so uh, Stuart asks, um, how come they would overlook this role for Ukraine, which is a population of about 40 million versus for Moldova, which has a much more manageable size of about 6 million? Yeah, I, I'm going to just focus on the Moldova part because I'm not the amb U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, and obviously the Ukrainian-NATO discussion is ongoing. Um, here in Moldova, as I mentioned, there's been no request uh, to join NATO. Moldova is um, a country that has is part of the Partnership for Peace. It has a long, um, uh, a long relationship with NATO. It works with NATO. It has been a country at risk that has gone to NATO to get advice and support, whether it's uh, thinking about a national security strategy or, or just how best to organize. There, have, there is a NATO uh, liaison office here in Chisinau, um, but they're not looking to become a member because of their constitutionally uh, neutral status. And so that, that continuation of that relationship, which again is something that's been going on uh, for the past 30 years, it's not something new, uh, is continuing. Um, and I think it's just part of the bigger discussion right now, as I mentioned in society, of what does a neutral country, uh, what kind of investment does a neutral country need to make in its own military and its own self-defense? Thank you very much. Leila. Uh, yes, Scott Schwartz is wondering uh, more so your role as an ambassador in Moldova uh, in the sense that if an administration wants a certain policy for Moldova that you personally disagree with, how do you combat this issue? That's a great question, not just for Moldova, but for all American diplomats uh, anywhere in the world that we're posted. Um, we are a nonpartisan foreign service. So we uh, basically are here to represent and explain and help people understand whatever the US policy is on any particular issue. We obviously have our own feelings, our own decisions that are what we think about issues, uh, but that's not really part of our work. Our work is to represent what the US uh, position is and to make sure we can explain it and help people understand it. 
um, and then it sometimes even asks them to support us. Um, we, as all Americans, have the way of changing government or making our voices or thoughts expressed, and that's by voting ourselves. But as far as our professional work, we represent the United States government. We represent the administration that the American people have elected. Uh, to follow up on that, how much influence would you think you have on the State Department when you pass on your best professional advice and tell them about how you evaluate the government, what the government may do or not do? Uh, does that count or do they just ignore the people, uh, uh, the, the local people and do whatever they want to do anyway? No, I have to say I've had a long career and throughout all those years, and that doesn't really matter where you are. Um, the people, our colleagues back in Washington, both at the State Department, but really throughout the U.S. government and of course in the White House, they do depend on us because we're the people on the scene. And my career over the past years has really changed. Obviously, when I first started, we were also kind of news reporters because some places were not covered so well by the, the international press or it took a few days. And so sometimes we were both breaking stories, but also we were explaining. And then the idea of explaining also means what does that mean for U.S. policy? And then what's our recommendation to make uh, U.S. policy either better, more effective, uh, whatever, whatever our, our argument would be. Um, over the years, I've really felt there's great respect um, for what we do in the field. Um, as many of you know, and it often happens that uh, you can be in an argument with someone and the minute you say, when was the last time you were there? Or when did you meet people? And if you say you just came from the border, you just came from a meeting with the president, uh, people are going to listen to you. You have the street credibility to say, wait, I, I really do understand this. Sometimes we don't carry the day. Uh, obviously, sometimes uh, posts or embassies, we make an argument that we think the United States should take a, a particular position, or we want to have additional assistance, or we hope that we'll uh, encourage the U.S. government to change a policy one way or another. But again, that's part of our role as a diplomat. Sometimes we're uh, heard and uh, actually, yes, we make a, a difference or might change a policy. Other times it's going to be a thank you, we've got that, but no, here's why we're not going to do it that way. Uh, but I think that we're a stronger country by having all of us in the field, uh, with having insight, with having engagement and interaction with leaders, with civil society, with free press, with media here. Um, all those people talk to us every day. And so we have great credibility back in Washington. And I think it's also important Washington talks to us, tells us what the, uh, the policies are, because that also gives us credibility with our partners here. In, in Moldova in my case, but in any place that we're posted. The big argument normally is that in the age of the internet, the age of Skype and Zoom, uh, Secretary Blinken can just pick up the phone or go onto a Skype call with his counterpart in Moldova and talk to the foreign minister directly. He doesn't really need you as an intermediary. You would not agree with that argument, I take it. No, in fact, I think it's great when he does pick up the phone. That's another indication of how important the relationship is. And yes, the secretary has met with the foreign minister and met with the president here. Um, those are engagements that are really important because they put their spot engagements. Uh, obviously, we have big agendas in the United States and all countries around the world have big agendas. And so it's very important to get that attention from Washington. <clears throat> But I can tell you that usually those calls come with uh, preparation. They come with support from the embassy as well as our own people, our own colleagues in, uh, in the government in, the, in Washington. And we provide as much information as possible so that those calls, so that those contacts 
can really focus on the key issues of the day <clears throat> or the moment and make sure that they have a really effective conversation. So they're not usually held in a vacuum. Uh, they, that's a good part where we engage and then we often will have actions to follow up on after those conversations. Yeah, thank you very much. Maybe we have one last question from each of our two assistants. Uh, Willow, would you begin? Sure. Um, Kilef asks, um, kind of in line with what you were just talking about, um, so much is happening all at once um, with a very, uh, with a fluctuating um, international uh, landscape. So how do you keep in step with the U.S. government constantly changing policy? I don't know if the U.S. government constantly changes policy. I think, <coughs> excuse me, you guys are wearing out my voice. Um, I, I think what we do is we have to keep up um, with the policy. So we've obviously paid close attention to our public statements, to what our um, counterparts, what our leadership in Washington is saying. Um, sometimes we go back and ask very specific questions because our government counterparts here might have a specific question about a policy. Um, and we can go back to our colleagues and ask if we don't know it. Um, another, often we're often just uh, paying attention to what's happening and we're sharing information as we have it. Uh, we also report back to Washington and tell them what people are talking about, what they're asking about. So it's much more of a fluid uh, give and take discussion of policy, uh, but we can always go back and, and ask for support if we need to know specifics about any policy. How many people do you have at the embassy in Moldova? <laughs> we have um, about 350. Uh, we have about 70 Americans and about, um, what would that be? I can't do my math here. Uh, 220 or so uh, local staff members who are Moldovans. So you would have 70 American diplomats? Yes. So this is quite a sizable number for a small country, I would say. Well, I think that shows exactly the depth and the breadth of our relationship with the Republic of Moldova. It's continued to grow. We have a very strong USAID mission. We obviously have an Office of Peace Corps to support about 100 volunteers at any one time. Uh, we have the State Department. We have the Department of Defense. And then we also have some support from our neighboring posts. So we have, for example, a commercial officer is in Ankara. We have someone who works on border security in Ankara. We have uh, the FBI is in uh, Bucharest who covers us. So we have additional support in addition to the people who are full-time here. Mm -hmm. And are you cooperating with the other uh, Western embassies on the ground? And is that uh, productive in a way? And in it, it is not only productive, it's critical, um, especially, as you mentioned, in a small country where we've got a lot of support and a lot of assistance, especially after this uh, terrible war started in Ukraine. We've all increased our assistance and our engagement with the Republic of Moldova. Uh, it's very important that we coordinate. We coordinate very closely, in particular, with the European Union. They have an embassy here. There's an, US, uh, an EU ambassador who I talk to very regularly. But we also have many of the European Union members uh, have full-time diplomatic missions here. So we have the French, German, uh, UK, uh, other ambassadors here. We have ambassadors from the former Soviet republics, from Kazakhstan to Azerbaijan to Georgia. Um, we have a, Jap a Japanese embassy here. Um, and so we have a few from the Middle East. So we have a number of different, uh, different colleagues and counterparts here. But I'd say our closest connections are with the European Union, uh, with the individual member states of the European Union, and with the UK and Japan, uh, just as we'd see anywhere around the world. That's good to hear that the transatlantic alliance is actually working. 
It's really important. We've got to coordinate because we don't want to waste money. We have taxpayer dollars in those assistance packages. And, you know, there's nothing worse than trying to help in an uncoordinated way. Um, the government wants to coordinate us. We want to coordinate with each other and make sure that we're not duplicating effort, make sure that we're working together. Thanks very much. Leila, the very final question. <laughs> Let's go on a fun one. Khalif is asking you personally as an ambassador what your favorite cultural thing has been a part of modernizing uh, <clears throat> language and wine. So uh, well I'd say wine, but actually it's uh it's really the food. Um it's been wonderful uh to taste and try so many wonderful things. Uh the wine has been terrific. Uh the culture is um uh has uh it's it resembles neighboring cultures, but it's its own unique thing. But what people always ask me about, what do I like best about Moldova? It's always the same answer. It's the people. They're incredibly outgoing and friendly. Um, I've never been in a place, it's a small place, so you want to communicate. So if you speak Romanian, they'll begin in Romanian. If you need to switch to Russian, we'll switch to Russian. If you need English, if you need French, we'll try it. Um, people want to communicate. They want to engage. They're very uh, interested in the outside world, and they see that as their future, especially looking to the West. But they also have deep ties with uh, deep cultural ties with Russia, with Russian language and literature and culture. Um, so it's a really fascinating place. We're right here at the crossroads of many different cultures and traditions. Um, so I really enjoy most of all the, about getting to know so many people who are really excited about sharing their culture with us. Thank you very much. I think we all would like to know before you go, when is the war on Ukraine going to end? Professor, you're going to have to answer that one. We, we all very much wish for peace. Um, and uh, it's, it's uh, just a very important thing. You hear that everywhere here in Moldova. Um, people would very much welcome that. I think all the world would welcome that. So uh, we'll continue to do our best uh, to support um, all the roads that lead to that. And of course, support Ukraine in their, uh, in their really, really valiant struggle. Thank you very much. Ambassador Kent Loxton has been a great pleasure. Thank you for joining our Ambassadors Forum here at the Krasno Global Event Series at UNC Chapel Hill. I would also like to thank our large audience. Most of them have actually stayed with us to the bitter end, which is very good. Only very few have left. Uh, so thank you again for finding the time at night in uh, Chisinau to be with us. I would like to point out that our next Krasno event is already on Thursday coming, next week, Thursday, also at 2 p.m. And we will again talk about uh, uh, Russia's war on Ukraine, uh, public opinion, the role of public opinion in Eastern Europe and elsewhere. And we'll uh, uh, look at various aspects of that war. We will have experts from Austria, from Bulgaria and from the United States joining us. But tonight, Ambassador Loxton, thank you very much indeed. It has been a great pleasure. Thank you, Professor. It's been fun. And thank you for the special North Carolina co uh, connection here. And I'm so glad that Elaine Marshall was with us and so many friends and colleagues. I can't see them all, uh, obviously, but so, uh, so grateful that they support us here and thank them for tuning in as well. Thank you very much. And I hope you will be back sometime soon. Absolutely. I promise. Thank you to you, our audience, and our speaker, Ambassador Logsdon. See you next time.